Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. I really want to teach people how to buy their time back, how to live a life by design, and you know how to stop being a slave to the income that they make and or the business that owns them. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Warren Buffett, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And today we're going to talk about a different type of performance. Uh, my guest today is someone I've gotten to know really well over the past year, Justin Donald. Justin has been called the Warren Buffett of lifestyle investing by Entrepreneur Magazine. He's a master of low-risk cash flow investing, teaching new investors how to generate passive income, and more importantly, financial independence. Justin's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, uh, number one bestseller, The Lifestyle Investor. And he's the host of the Lifestyle Investor podcast and a top-rated speaker. Justin, welcome. Uh, excited to finally have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks, Bob. I'm excited to be here. This is, uh, this is really fun. We've been talking about this for a little while now. Yeah. And, and I know it sounds a little nut and bolty, but I, I consider you to be more philosophical <laughs> about a lot of things around uh, money and, and, and wealth and investing. So just actually, with that in mind, starting on a personal note, I know like how clearly you take your role as a father. You know, what lessons about parenthood did you kind of learn from your own childhood? And were those, were those good things or, or bad things? Because uh, I know sometimes it goes both ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I got both, right? Yeah. So as a child, I really, I mean, even today, I've got fond memories of my parents. I think that they did a great job. I've got a great relationship with them today. And there are many things that they did well, which is they loved me well. They gave me independence. They had confidence in me to make decisions. They actually let me make mistakes and learn from them. They didn't, you know, shelter me well, they, from... They'd be fired as parents today, but yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's just so much that I feel like they did right. And, you know, it, it's hard to be uh, nitpicky of them when I feel like parenting is a tough job and all parents literally are doing their best with yeah. the information they have. Um, but some of the things I think that I learned along the way from them that weren't as positive or just kind of like a scarcity mindset on things or a, a, a limited uh, mindset where it, it was that money is uh, scarce and hard to come by and that it doesn't grow on trees and that... Well, that is true, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Things are expensive. Everything's expensive. There's so much we can't do. And, you know, so I, I remember even when I was uh, early on in my career post-college and I'm making six figures and I worked hard 
to make my first six figures. But I remember being in a conversation, talking to people about how money, money doesn't grow on trees, but that's not the world I'm living in. It's just something that like I adopted from them and then just continued to say without thinking about it. Right. And so, so what was your first job? So my first job, I remember this. So in seventh grade, I went to my mom and said, Hey, I'd like to get some money to go to the movie theater with my friends. And I remember my mom saying, you know, I'm not your bank. Money doesn't grow on trees. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, you've got an allowance free market system. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) totally. Uh, I'm out of allowance money. And she's like, well, then you need to go get a job. And, uh, and so I did in seventh grade, I got a job, Bob. And I started selling newspaper subscriptions door to door. And I was horrible at it. I mean, I would go weeks at a time with no sales and you're only paid based on sales. It was 100% commission. I was working for free. I was that bad at the beginning. And and when then you graduated college, you talked about that six-figure job. So what what did you go into? Sales or or something totally different? What did you study? You know, I so when I was at the University of Illinois, I I took uh, they did they do such a great job, uh, or at least did I, I think they still do with their business classes where they bring in adjunct professors that actually are experts in the thing that they're teaching, whether it be real estate or stock market investing or arbitrage strategy or wealth creation insurance. I mean, just I had so many really cool professors, really smart professors. And uh, that was kind of what got me the most excited. And so I knew that that was kind of a a component of where I wanted to be, but I was going to need capital to be able to invest. So I wanted to find the highest paying job. And I eventually got good at sales at even selling newspaper subscriptions door to door. I ended up becoming the top guy. So even in like middle school, high school, I made really good money. what, What was the shift? We missed that part. So what what made you go from not closing anything to being the best? I think just learning a script and having a few objections that I learned to handle huh. uh, really changed the game. And then overarching, probably the biggest thing was to stop taking no personally, that it really didn't have to do with me. It just had to do with uh, where they were at. And then later learning that the better that I got, the more I could help influence their, I guess, desire to help me out or their desire to get a subscription, which carried over really well into the Cutco organization because that's how I paid for college. Oh, I sold Cutco. Right. You're, you're one of them. Part I of am. The, part of the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I it, you know, and we've got a lot of mutual friends from that space. And uh, that served me really well because, again, if you work hard, you're paid commission. I mean, I remember paying for a whole year of college, you know, room and board just from what I earned selling in the summer. It was incredible. So, so you went back to your mom and said, you're right. Money doesn't go on trees. It grows from knife blocks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So I, I was very like, I was so excited about that. Uh, my parents really weren't in a place to be able to help me with school. So I paid for my college myself. And when I graduated, I instead of continuing with sales, I kind of moved up in management with their organization and, and really learned how to work through people and motivate, inspire, train, uh, recruit salespeople that would just sell the product all throughout the U.S. Got it. And so what, what was the shift from 
selling, leading, managing to like, I, I think it was in your mid thirties, you had this breakthrough, like when did your job become investing and how, what does that even look like? Or how does someone do that? Cause I assume, I assume that the, the number one objection, and now we know you're good at objection handling is people say, Oh, that's something you do once you make a ton of money. Right. Well, I think you want to get good at handling objections, no matter where you are, whatever yeah. you do, uh, there's always an objection for something. So the better you can get there, uh, I think the more options and opportunities it provides. But really for me, like I got started when I was 18 and I just started investing in the stock market. I would invest in my qualified plans before I knew better and, and realized that qualified plans might not be yeah. the best place to invest. But it was what all of the people, all the smartest people I knew at that time, it's what they did. So the first portion of my career of investing really was to dollar cost average into the stock market and you know hire someone to manage my money and and that was it but I had this wake up call I had two different wake up calls all right so one of my wake up calls bob was the decision that I needed to get out of working so hard for the money that I made yeah and then the other really big um, decision was that I learned that I was being manipulated by the financial services industry and I wasn't making anywhere close to what they were saying I was making on my money. And so I have two, mo like just these defining moments in my career. One of them, I'm sitting in an office and it's like 1030 at night and it's a Friday night and I have worked so hard. I mean, I've been putting in 16, 17, 18 hour days. And I've been doing this for a long stretch. And I just remember thinking, you know, I've got my friends that are out, they're out at the bars, they're doing whatever. And I'd love to be with them. But I knew for this season, I was going to put in the time to build my business because I was a, a one man show. There was no one helping me. It was just me until I figured out how to hire people and train people and, you know, actually work well with people and not run them into the ground. And I just remember sitting there saying, you know what, at some point I want to have a family. And this work schedule is not conducive to having a family. I don't want to be working this late. Selling hours. Yeah. yeah. And so I just remember saying, you know what? For this season, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bust my butt. But it's so that next season, I don't have to be here. But I need to figure out the season where my income isn't tied to my time spent. And so that was really where I had this epiphany. And this is also like partially through reading books too, is like, I need to buy assets that produce income and not just have my time produce income. And then if my time is going to produce income, it needs to be something that I love to do. It needs to be something that I'm good at. It needs to be something that I feel there's purpose in. And ideally, I can figure out how to remove myself so it scales without me. So it's still maybe dependent on my time, but not as heavily dependent on my time. Right. The double-edged sort of and maybe it's sort of addiction compulsion of these sales jobs, right? Is that you can earn as much as you can work. <laughs> and so that's, that's really motivating until you realize, well, again, when am I going to draw the line on Saturday or Sunday or 10 PM or 11 PM? I mean, it becomes a, it's a fun cycle. And then it becomes a, where, where does this end? Right. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I, that was part of the, you know, allure to me. It's like the harder you work, the more you can make. That's really cool. I want to make a lot. So that way, when I have a lot, I can invest more right. or I can, upgrade my lifestyle. So it, it totally is that. But I think people need to be careful too, because I became a slave to my business. 
yeah. and I became a slave to money and I became a slave to the lifestyle I had. And I became a slave to really just the, the growth of the business that, that it couldn't, that I was trying to fill too many roles and, and we really couldn't scale. I was the bottleneck. Right. But at the same time, there's an ego involved where it's like, well, I, I'm the business. How's it going to, you know, I need to make these decisions. And so I just wanted to escape this whole feeling of being a slave because you, you can have a job and like a lot of people, they have a job and they leave it to start their own business for freedom and autonomy and more yeah. income and whatever. But what ends up happening to most people is it, that business owns them. <laughs> they work yeah. more than they worked at a job. Granted, they make more. Uh, in in some cases, not all cases, but really, what they did is they just built a bigger, better quality mousetrap. Well, they also don't have a sense of the value of the business because let's say the business puts off three hundred grand a year, but they're the head of sales, head of marketing, head of whatever, and all that's two hundred and you know twenty five thousand dollars a year. Well, then you own a seventy five thousand dollar a year business. With based on one person, which is worth nothing, right? So you might actually argue that like you're better off in a job or a gig account, right, <laughs> or something like that. Right? Yeah, because if I mean the odds of being able to sell are not good in that instance, and if you do sell, you're the business. That's not. It's right. It's not a business. It's a. It's an LLC wrapped around a person. That's right. That's right. So it's hard to get a good valuation, and right. then you're going to have an earnout, which is probably going to be over a long period of time, and it's going to be massively discounted. Based on, you know, it being a one man or one woman show. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And so you probably also realized in this process that 
the assets that people talk about, right? Their house, their car, let's just loosely call that an asset, <laughs> their uh, their stock thing, they don't produce income, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of what people consider assets don't produce income. Most people are tracking their net worth and they're tracking it based on what I'm going to call a, a fictitious valuation. Most people haven't hired a third party to truly evaluate their company, their business, see what it's worth. And everyone always thinks that their business is worth more than it is because it's their baby. And so, you know, for most people, they're they're chasing this net worth number that it's it's totally paper money. Like you can't, you don't have right. liquidity, you can't exit and all of a sudden have cash to live your life. And I just think that it's really important to um, be able to figure out how to get cash flow that covers your expenses so that you can just live a great life independent of what your income is, independent of you know, what your business does. And, you know, it's funny to me, people like if you're in the world of business and someone wants to buy you or you're trying to get money from a bank or whatever you're trying to do, trying to raise money, they're going to look at your cash flow statement. (laughs) Like people don't like, it's so funny to me that you, you look from a business standpoint, it's like, you know, balance sheet, P and L cash flow statement, that cash flow statement's more important than most people realize. But then in your personal life, why do people not Think about a cash flow statement. To me, it's the most important part. Well, think about your million dollar house that you own outright, right? And you asset. Well, it's going to cost you 25 grand a year in taxes. And if you want to use that equity, it's going to cost you three or 4%. It's not, right? It's not producing income. I mean, it is potentially producing a capital gain for you. But if you had to live on that by just taking out the money every year, you know, that wouldn't, wouldn't be a good way to go. That's right. Yeah. And, and really, then it's also based on, what does the market say that it's worth? And what it's worth today could be massively different than 10 years. Now, if you want to bank on the US economy over the long haul, which is probably smart, I think you got some value there. But that that's just a big difference than like what true cash flow is. If you have assets that just produce income and you've got money that comes in every single month and it's totally independent of your business, it's independent of your time, it's just independent of, of all these things, and it's diversified income. You have you know, five, 10, 20 different streams of income based on different assets that you own, that's a really strong place to be. And ironically, your net worth doesn't even have to be that much to have a great income that's coming in that's covering 100, 200, $300,000, $500,000 of what it costs you to live. And so how, like, how do you get started? I mean, I hear this, people are like, okay, this is great. And I think the most thing people know is buy a rental property, right? Or buy a two-family and rent out the other side. I mean, what are the other, I mean, historically bonds, but they don't pay anything today, right? Like on a risk-free basis. So what like what do these cash flow investments look like? How and how did you find them or how did you how did you even make this shift? Because it doesn't sound like you had a ton of money at, at the time. Yeah. So that, that's a great question, Bob. And I, I love like how do you take the first step? What do you do? Because most people, what they do with their profits is they put them all back in their business. And your business, for most people, it's their number one, right. it's the number one component of their net worth. So it's it's so undiversified, it's so high risk that if anything goes wrong at any time, you what you've built for all these years evaporates, right? So then you've got some people that have the majority of their net worth in their business, but they've they're putting some money in the stock market, which equally you don't have as much. I mean, you don't have much control over that. You don't have much control over the economy, but banking on the long haul. And you, you know, if you do this in a in a smart way where you're not overpaying, 
that can make sense, uh, especially if you're doing index funds. I think that there's some misalignment in the financial services industry where they represent like they're making you more than you're really making. And if you do the math, you'll find out pretty soon that um, so, uh, you meant you alluded to that. What was that epiphany of going through the statement? Like, where's where's the missing money going? Is it fees? All the fees? Like, what is the where is the return? Not the return? Yeah, fees and taxes. And uh, I mean, I had financial advisors that were making money when I was losing money. And that's a horrible feeling to have. Yeah. And then the worst part about it, though, is that my statements would say your average rate of return is 8%, 7%. You know, it sounds like you're making money. But when you do the math, you might not be making money. So in my case, I lost money. But my statement from this institution said that my average return was 8%. So break that down. Why, what does average return mean versus actual return? So an average rate of return, they're just averaging all the years. So if you have an up year and a down year, but you have more up years than down years, uh, or you have a larger increase, maybe you have one really big year that's like you know a 30%, 40% increase, but you have a whole bunch of negative years, or maybe you have consistent up years, but one down year. If you're just taking an average, you're averaging that percentage. That's not real money. That's just an average. Oh, Because if you're down 10 and then you're up 10, you're not back to zero. That's right. And most yeah. people think you are. I, I mean, my experience in coaching people is that negative 10 and positive 10 is an average of 0%. Yeah. But if you lose $10,000 from 100,000, you're down to 90,000. And then you make 10% back, you're at 99,000. You lost money. Right. Your, your net is a net loss. So the average return on that fund is zero over two years, but your account is down money. Got it. Yeah. And right. so that was a real big wake up call that, like, I just can't rely on other people, like what's the cheapest way that I can get a return and bank right. on the US economy over the long haul? I probably shouldn't do it during the, the short term. I'm not a trader, right? And this is this is where the private equity world, I think, gets it right with IRR net return. It's like dollar That's for right. dollar. What did I get? Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so much more transparent. There's so much more control. So for me, I just I started with buying uh, real estate, specifically mobile home parks. How did you just start buying mobile home parks? Like, like this is not something people start with. So who told you about this? Like, well, I I always thought I was gonna start with these three flats and four flats right, right, when right. I lived in Chicago. That that's what I really thought I was yeah. gonna happen. But they're just so darn expensive and I couldn't figure out how to make the numbers work. And so I had a friend that had some single family homes. And even at that point in time, I think he had like, I don't know seven to 10 single family homes, but it was, it was still hard to like make a good margin. I, I really feel like on single family homes, I mean, today you've got short-term rentals. So if you're in a hot market, that's a little bit different than a long-term rental, but you really kind of got to be at like 40, 50 homes for scale to really get the, the, the economies of that scale. So right. I didn't want to do that. My friend decided to sell those and transition into mobile home parks. And I thought he was crazy. Yeah. many As you said, many people who, who again, I think that's why some of the people who live in one and rent the other side, many people who rent houses find that maybe the return's okay, but <laughs> they don't like being called in the middle of the night and a that's lot right. of the freedom stuff that you're talking about. That's right. Yeah. And that brings another point that we could get into of like, what do you value more, the highest return or where you're spending your time? Because you could choose to spend your time differently and make a smaller return. And to me today, that is worth it versus 
when I was younger, I was like, I just want to make the best return I can. So I'll be inconvenienced with my time for a period of time. So we've all, we've all heard time value of money, but you put a different description on the time value of money too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for that season of life, I just dug in and I, you know, my, my buddy did it and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually going pretty well for him. Maybe I should consider this. So I went to a boot camp and I learned all about it. And uh, it was a great boot camp. Uh, in fact, you know, for anyone that is that is interested in it, Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds put on just a, a brilliant seminar. And so I just called a whole bunch of people to see if I could find someone that would sell. And I eventually found someone. And my very first deal was a seller finance deal. So he carried the note. I just paid him. Uh, it was a 10-year note with an option to extend for another 10 years at 5% interest. And that park that I purchased made enough money to cover my wife's income uh, from teaching after tax. And did you have to manage the park or did you hire a manager? So I hired a manager, but at the beginning of all the things that I do, I try to personally do everything so that I know what it it is so I can teach it. Yeah. So my goal is to not always do it, but I figure if I can learn everything, then I know what I like to do, what I don't like to do. And I for sure can know if someone's pulling a fast one on me. Uh, So I always learn everything. And then I start handing out the responsibilities to other people as I train them. But it's it's one of the easiest businesses to manage. So it was easy for me to to pull myself out of really the day-to-day operations and just focus on acquisitions. All right. So then you got some income coming in from this one, right? You borrowed the money and again, you borrowed the money. The seller was basically the bank. Uh, so that made it easy because if you default on the loan, you just give them back the park, right? Um, so yep. then what? <laughs> so then I talked to that seller about buying another one of his parks on another seller finance note. And that park with the two added together, that covered our minimum expenses. So at that point in time, it was about 50000 a year. That covered our mortgage, our utilities, um, our groceries, car payments, everything. It covered all of our basic expenses just to survive. Not necessarily lifestyle, Bob, just what it took for us to survive. So you have like an emergency fund, an almost self-generating emergency fund. Just taking the opposite approach so people can understand that. Why does the seller want to sell? And not get any of the money up front. A lot of times they would trade the profits for the money up front. They're just exhausted. They're tired. Like, why, why do they want to? Because they're getting the same, you know, they're, they're not getting the lump sum that you would think would be entice them to get out. Yeah, I think it depends on the situation. So, number one, you've got a lot of sellers that uh, they've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. And so they're ready to retire. These are yeah. baby boomers. They're, they're ready to just be done. And how nice and easy would it be for them to just get a payment every month? You know, another reason is there's a big tax hit if you take all that money at once. But if you do it over a period of time, then it's not that same tax burden. And then, you know, the, one of the biggest things that I've realized is that most of these people don't know how to invest and manage that money anyway. So what are they going to do with all that money? So they're, they rather like getting the annuity stream and getting out of the business. Yeah. 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 And so the risk is I don't perform well and they take it back and they already know how to do that, you know, and they could sell it to someone else. And then they get to keep my down payment and every payment that I've made so far. But for them, they've got an income stream and it's likely covering what it costs them to live or close yeah. to it. So it's, it's really a win-win if you find the right person. 
So what you do is the opposite of what most people do. They want to put in their money, maybe have some risk, get a return. You, you want to make sure that you get a return and less risk, right? And and like getting a yield, which is just not, you know, when you invest in a stock other than a dividend, you get that. It's just, it's really different, right? So what other types of deal, like I assume there's loans or what other types of things have this same sort of construct and, and who are the type of people that you want to do that deal with? Yeah. And let me flip this. Yeah. The, the script real quick, because what most people do, as I said, they, you know, take their dollars, they put them all back in their business, or they put a little bit back into, you know, the stock market, 401ks, qualified plans. And then you got uh, other people sometimes that say, all right, now I want to start investing in these companies, but they're not really investors. They're entrepreneurs and they usually lose all their money when they do yeah, this initially. I, I mean, I see this all day, every day. This this is the world. Well, you I just live also in. took liquid money and now made it a liquid for a long time yes. too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I, I joke. It's a zero percent interest loan for an undetermined period of time and a high risk asset that you may never get back. I mean, most angel <laughs> investments don't turn out, and this is how most people like think that they're investing. I mean, I, I get some people will will you know hit it, but it's not because they're good. It's because they're lucky, but the vast majority just lose all the money that they do that with. Or on the deals they win, they find out they got to write another huge check or they're going to, because these big investors are coming in and they, or they're going to be converted to common. I mean, it's, I have seen so many entrepreneurs sell their business, then start investing it in angel investing. And then in two years, they're not doing any of it. They've lost their money. They're so frustrated. The other people aren't responsible with the money and they are. And it's just, Anytime I see someone dive into that, then I check in a year or two and they're like, I don't do any of that anymore. Cause it's not, yeah, it's not what they were good at. It's not what they knew. It's not, they're not as careful with the money as the other person is. So yeah. Even if they're good at it, it's the highest risk investing that exists. And it is usually a seven to 10 year window to get a return. Right. Yeah. I would say best case yeah. scenario, seven to 10 years. I'd say most of the time, like 15 to 20 years. Yeah. So you look at these companies, number one, even if you're an expert, the experts get around 90% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. The experts literally say, so if you, if you follow anyone who's really good at this, it's like one exit in your lifetime is good. Two is exceptional. So you need to play a lot of, uh, a lot of chips. Yeah. yeah there's mean, actually a fund that I don't know, you either introduced me to or, or, or someone else, but they just play the whole market, which I think is a really right. interesting strategy. They just work with all the you know incubators and stuff and just get 500K into a bunch of deal. I mean, that that's playing the odds and yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the goal is, I mean, if you really want to make it in that game, then you really need to have about 50 or more investments. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, I, I introduce you to one of the groups that I've invested with that gets action on anywhere from 600 to a thousand right. deals in their fund, you know, all in this early stage. So to me, that's the best way to do it is by having the numbers work and right. people that have been in the business that have expertise, but it's just, High risk. The, well, the biggest danger is well, is my friend Justin. We'll use you, who, you know, hit the jackpot, right? Justin put like twenty grand into that, and it was a second investment. It was worth two million, like because actually, like the one out of a hundred comes first, and then I, I've heard you know more all the people who had the misses, but like the one, it's like no one talks about their losing at the casino, right? The the, right. the, the man or the woman who wins tells everyone and the, the people that lose don't tell anyone. And so you have a disproportionate positive signal to noise, you know, ratio. Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. And 
I'm just going to go on record and say, in most people's cases, investing in investing in angel investments is like just throwing darts at a dartboard and seeing which one sticks for which company you're going to invest in, or going to Vegas and just throwing some money down in in uh, roulette. Just a total gamble. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff you invest in, right, isn't isn't public, right? It's private. So how do you evaluate these deals? And I'd love to hear about the ones you got burned on, right? Not not the specifics, but what do you learn from the deal that you shouldn't have done for next time? Yeah, there's no doubt that when you lose money, it's some of the best education. In the moment, it feels horrible and it's <laughs> the worst feeling. And you're like, ah, oh, man, if only... But it is some of the best education that you'll ever get. So I'm happy to share some of those. But I just want to structure a deal. In fact, right before this, I was on an investment call um, where I structured the deal. It was a unique structure. I love uh, investing in companies, investing in debt, where you have a senior secured position. So you're like first position. If anything goes wrong or right, you're paid first with collateral to back it. So in case it goes wrong, you can get your money back. All the investors would be wiped out, which they do not want that to happen. That's right. That's right. So if if there's collateral and everything goes wrong, you get that collateral and you can sell it and recoup your investment. So I like that. But then I'm trying to get a piece of the upside. So with a lot of these deals I do, I try to get some equity or I try to get some warrants, which is an opportunity to, to exercise an option to have equity. Or, or an equity-like transaction. And so a lot of my deals are that. I also like investing in what I think are the high growth areas. So e-commerce, I think, is booming, will continue to boom. Cannabis, hemp, CBD. I just think those are great areas to be in. Um, you know, I would say industrial warehouses and distribution centers. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Decarbonization, but- is that one you're focused on at all? Sort of decarbonization, green economy. So I just, that to me is, so I have some exposure with a company that I think is going to SPAC and I think it's going to end up turning out great, but hey, it might end up turning out horrible and I might lose everything. You know, who knows? We're still early on in that one, but we're looking at good results. But I try to put money in areas that I know it well and it's not so highly dependent upon legislation. And I think that that is. So I really only have a small percentage of my portfolio exposed to something that I think can just change, you know, by the the flip of a switch. So the question someone asked me, you know, when I was talking about one of the deals that you put together that, that participated in was interesting was, so why wouldn't that company just go to a bank? Why are they talking to Justin and his friends and his network? And, and, and it's a good question. Yeah, I think that there are a number of reasons. Number one, you can go to a bank and you can get money from a bank. Generally, they're going to charge you really high interest. And they're probably not going to give you a favorable valuation or favorable terms. Uh, in addition, there's going to be a lot of covenants that you have to abide by. Uh, and so... What one of the things that I share with people is that when they come to us instead of a bank, we're, you know, I always talk about the difference between, you know, bank money and smart money. And smart money is where you have extra resources. So I think that if you're looking to raise money, you can get money anywhere. The smarter move is to get money from well connected people with a network to be able to help the organization. And so 
that's where we get a lot of the deals where people come to us and say, hey, instead of using a bank, we'd love to use you. Here are some of the terms that we got with the bank. What would you do for us? Because we know that your investors or you personally can help us grow based on other connections that you can make. So that's one reason. And then the other one is people that have, sometimes people say, well, why don't, why don't you raise money and not do debt? Why don't you just take equity? Yeah. A lot of people think that their company is going to be worth a heck of a lot more and they'd rather pay high interest today because that's still cheaper than what it would be if they gave away equity or, or you know, I say gave it away, but gave it for investment uh, capital. You know, right now in, in the cannabis industry, for example, um, these companies are paying an incredibly high interest rate because there's no way to get lending from a bank not until it's federally legal. So you can only get it from private investors. And I mean, these are like high interest, 20, 25, 30% interest, but these companies are growing so fast. It's one of the fastest growth sectors of anything right now, fastest growing industries. So they recognize that that's still cheaper than the value of the equity that they would sell. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and again, if you have $150 million in equity in that business and they want to borrow $5 million, as the lender, <laughs> you're feeling pretty good about <laughs> you know, the senior position, as you were saying. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's no doubt. You know, So for me, I just think that if you can help people, help businesses, entrepreneurs, founders, if you can help them accomplish what they're wanting to accomplish. You can help them do it faster. You can make it more fun. You can provide a lot of value with your network, with the capital you provide, but beyond just the capital, there's just so many ways to make it work. And so what's fun for me now is saying, hey, I've invested in this company, but I also think this company would be a great partner company. And then I'll connect those two companies together. And so often they end up starting to do business and they help each other scale. And so my goal is to be doing more of that where I can pull people into our ecosystem and we can really help them with scale, solving problems, hiring, all the things that we've helped companies with that I've done from you know starting a company to, at this point, just from a network, leveraging the people I know in the industries that they may be looking for help in. Yeah. And again, I guess to what you said before, you think about like, you know, your grandmother gives you $1,000, you know, for 1% and inadvertently, <laughs> you know, or for $100 inadvertently you know, value or 0.01% values the company at $10 million. I don't know how you feel about dealing with friends or family or whatever, but, but sometimes it's probably cleaner to, as you said, lend that company money and have some upside because you know how you're going to get your money back, right? An investment, 
I always think it's interesting when entrepreneurs are pitching their business to investors and don't include a exit strategy <laughs> part of the presentation saying, look, here's how the money come in. Here's all this great stuff we're going to do. But wait, wait, how am I getting it back? Because I only get it back if you have an exit strategy versus there are lots of different ways to pay back money in more of a, a lending structure. Yeah, and and with a lending structure, generally you're going to have you know you're going to have a balloon at the end of the term. Maybe yeah. it's one year, two years, three years, whatever it is, and you get all that money back. But if you have equity kickers, you have all your money out, and you have equity in the company for free. Kevin O'Leary's strategy. I always notice, yeah. you know, that's his every shark deal is I get a royalty until I get my <laughs> my original investment back. That's right, and I just I love setting it up so that it can be a win win on both sides. And in fact, one of the things I talk about in my book is the velocity of money. And in this section, I really share the, to me, the importance of getting your principal back as quickly as possible. So let's say I invested $100,000 into uh, this real estate deal. And this deal is able to, you know, they can refinance you out of it at a year, a year and a half. You get all your money out, but you still have equity. And so people don't necessarily recognize that this is a thing. I can have all my money out of this real estate deal because they refinanced with you know bank money. Yeah. And now I have my, my principal back. I've got a return that I got on that principal, but I still have equity in the company. So whenever they sell or whenever they make distributions, I'm going to make a portion of that for as long as they hold it and a portion of whatever the exit is. So how fast do you want your principal back when you look at a deal? What's realistic? Yeah, each deal is a little different. I mean, with with lending, if you're doing some hard money lending in, in real estate, you can get back in six months to 12 months. I mean, that's that's really nice. Um, there are other deals in real estate where I, you know, it's like 1.5 to three years. I don't like the long holds particularly. You know, I've got other deals that I've done with operating companies where we we have a, maybe it's a two-year timeline where we're fully paid and there are distributions uh, that are disproportional until all initial capital is repaid and then it switches back to you know maybe what the cap table percentages are. So there's a lot of different ways you can structure it, but my goal is to get my money back generally in like one to three years, hopefully in one to two years, because then I can recycle those dollars. I can take $100,000 that I just got paid back in one year on this real estate deal that I just referenced before. And then I put that same $100,000 into a note. And that note pays me, I don't know, let's just call it 15% total. And I'm getting monthly distributions. And then in another year, I get that money back. And then I put it into another deal. Maybe I negotiated an equity kicker in that deal. You're saying you get the principal back. I get the principal back. Got it. So you get the principal plus I, I, the 15% is not going to get your money back for three or no. four years. Yeah. That's just the the cash flow. Like Got every it. time I do a deal, I want there to be cash flow. There's, so these are short-term duration. Short duration, cash flow during that short duration, full return of principal, but then keeping some sort of equity in the deal. So if I can continue to keep getting my money back and have equity in multiple deals over five years, I could have five different deals, five different equity and have all my money back and literally hold the same $100,000 I invested in the first deal with. So back to the mistakes, I assume there's just some deals that don't work out. COVID hits, market hits. But you know, there's a quote I heard once that comes back to me and I'm curious, You know, I'm not leading the witness on this one, but it said, you can't do a bad deal with a good person or a good deal with a bad person. Like, is it has that been your experience across hundreds of deals? That that obviously there's some ones where it really is market forces, but but 
a good partner will try to take care of investors and a scrupulous partner doesn't, doesn't care. I think that's definitely a factor. I mean, there are people that I've invested with where the deal hasn't gone the way that they wanted or projected or something happened in the market. There's a supply issue. There's numerous different things that can happen. Yeah. You own a restaurant, you know, going into March, 2020. Yeah. Yeah, That's tough, (laughs) but there are a lot of groups that I've worked with where they've made it right by the investors and the investors haven't lost money. So there are companies where we didn't make the return we should have, Yeah, but the sponsor still paid us our money back because they didn't want any investors to lose money. So I've had that happen before. I've had it happen, you know, where the return was supposed to be twice as much and ended up being less. And so they restructured the contract so that they took, you know, maybe they got rid of their catch up so that you would get paid more as an investor. So there is there's truth to working with just great top-notch integrous people. I think that that's really important, but I also think that if you're going to invest money, you're going to lose money at some point in time. So instead of just putting all your money in one place, like most people put all their money in the stock market or the vast majority and if something happens to the stock market, all your eggs are in one basket. Yeah, do you have a percent rule you follow by individual investment or by type? Yeah, I, I don't like any single investment to be more than 10% of my portfolio. And often I don't like it to be more than 5%. And I mean, I, I want to look at cash flow. So, for example, I think for me personally and for the people that I coach, I talk a lot about buying your time back. And so I want to help people create cash flow so that they can live their life and they can live a great life. And then work at growing that cash flow above and beyond what it costs them to live. So their investments can be based on cash flow coming in every month and not taking the principal that could be earning them that that quality of life and investing it into something where you're not going to see a return for a while. So I may invest differently today, having all the cash flow that I need than what I would if I had expenses and no passive income. So risky stuff for me, it's not that I don't invest in risky stuff. It's not that I don't invest in like long-term stuff. It's that I want to invest in those things from dollars that are going to continue to be paid out every month. So if I lose out on an equity investment, let's say I put 25K, let's say I got 25K in passive income above and beyond what it costs me to live. Like my lifestyle's covered. I get 25K overage or surplus. I put that 25K into, I don't know, a, a tech fund that's not going to pay out for probably seven to 10 years. Well, I hope that that works out. I'm not going to know for seven to 10 years if that's going to work out. But if it doesn't work out, I'm still getting 25K next month and 25K the month after that. And that's okay. That's way different than not having your lifestyle covered and putting 25K into a high risk or long-term hold type of investment. You're investing almost out of the profit rather than the, the principal. That's right. Yeah, I love playing with house money as much as humanly possible. <laughs> so what, what do you think is a, a myth that new investors tend to fall prey to? And, and what's the truth behind the myth? Gosh, there's so many myths. In fact, you know, in my book, I, I outline five or six of the major yeah. myths out there. You know. One of the things that I think people do is they get caught in this allure of the, what the projected return is, like a pro forma or like a, a 
you know, ideal financial scenario. And they're like, oh yeah, this is going to return me 20%. And it's almost like you, instead of using good reasoning and doing good due diligence, it's like chalking up, oh yeah, I'm making 20% on this deal. But that generally isn't how it works. And so I have fallen prey to this. You asked earlier, you know, about an investment where I totally botched the deal and that was it. I got caught up in what it would feel like to have this monthly cash flow that was over 20% of an annual return and that it didn't cost me much to get there. And so I got so tied up in like, oh, I'm going to have X amount per month. This is so good for passive income that I just didn't do all of the research I should have done. I locked money on that investment. And I talk about that in my book. Like I literally have a whole section about I call them, you know, Murphy, Murphy's loss for for the lifestyle investor. It's like all the all the mistakes that I've made and the lessons I've learned from those mistakes. All right, well, that's a good one to leave it on. So, Justin, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? So, everyone can uh, go to justindonald.com and you can find there, you know, all the things I do. I've got an online course, a masterclass, a mastermind a podcast, a blog that I just started. Everything that I have, you know, it's time tested over, you know, the last 22 years that I've been doing things. I've been heavily involved in alternative investments for 15 uh, or 16 years now. And so I really want to teach people how to buy their time back, how to live a life by design and, you know, how to stop being a slave to the income that they make and or the business that owns them. Well, Justin, thanks for joining us. Uh, You've done a great job helping a lot of people think about how they can live a more fulfilling lifestyle and and not get fully wrapped up and defined by by the work that they do every day. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. This has been fun to catch up and uh, and chat even longer than uh, than what we had talked last time. This is really fun. Appreciate it. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Justin and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. 
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.